You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sunday at 6 p.m. on the Agony Column, The Politics of Literature with Jim Houston. And they all came together to save that part of Santa Cruz from that kind of overdevelopment. Karen Fowler. I spent the years of the Bush presidency keeping my fury evergreen. And Lori King. Now they called it anarchy. True, the path to anarchy must be carved through the rubble of the status quo, but birth was never an easy business. It's all just a little bit of history repeating. I'm Rick Kleffel. Join me Sunday at 6 p.m. for The Agony Column with Robert Shear. All of the restraints we have, that, which I think are very meaningful, they don't work once you're in a war situation. That's what my book is all about. That's why I call it The Pornography of Power. Plus, Julie Rose translates Les Miserables. What struck me as I translated it was the pertinence to today's political situation. When I was in the middle of the translation, there were riots in Paris. Rule the world, Sunday at 6, with the Agony Column. So I want to be engaged with the world. I just don't want to conquer it. Robert Shear is the editor-in-chief of TruthDig.com, a 2007 Webby Award winner for the best political blog. He's a contributing editor to The Nation, a syndicated columnist based at the San Francisco Chronicle, and a host for Left, Right, and Center. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. This new book of yours starts in a really surprising place, with you talking with a man that I would suspect you'd never have a civil conversation with. Could you tell us a little bit about that conversation? How did it come to pass? Well, you're talking about Richard Milhouse Nixon. And um, it's interesting, you know, I, I certainly uh, regarded Nixon as a war criminal and, uh, you know, didn't have a soft spot in my heart for him. And, and particularly because I did credit him with the opening to China and with detente and also a, a number of, uh, of good domestic programs. I mean, Moynihan, uh, Patrick Moynihan, who later, you know, was later a very progressive senator, worked for him. And he had believed in a guaranteed annual income. He supported the first environmental legislation. Uh, so, you know, uh, but still, I, I, I felt there was such an enormous contradiction between the opening to China, getting along with Mao Zedong, you know, some pretty bloody communist dictators, and getting along with the Soviet Union, which was, you know, bristling with arms and everything. You could have detente with those guys, but somehow you're going to punish Vietnam because they're communists. You know, who are they threatening? Looking back at, at the Democrats of the 60s, that reminds me that we were, the Democrats were the war party. I even said we. We Democrats were the war party. And, um, you know, Nixon came along and he showed every promise of ending this, ending this. And, uh, you know, he wrote an article for Foreign Affairs in 1968 in which he in, said, you know, communism is not internationalist. The Cold War is basically... Uh, 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 rooted in a, a fallacy of sort of a unified international communist movement that threatens us. He said, in fact, it's nationalist. He, you know, there was Tito in Yugoslavia. The Sino-Soviet dispute has been longstanding. And so he said, we can do business with these people. And this is where the neocons come from. It really was largely a movement in reaction uh, to Nixon's detente. Nixon had learned a great deal at the knee of Eisenhower, who I dedicate the book to, along with George McGovern. 
And, uh, you know, so, but I didn't think so highly of Nixon when he was in office because, as I say, he escalated the war in Vietnam, which made no sense if you're getting along with China and Russia. Why are you so freaked out about uh, Vietnam? And uh, he got a lot of people killed, millions of Indo-Chinese. Uh, McNamara says 3.4 million altogether, and a couple of million at least uh, were done on, on Nixon's watch. He escalated uh, the bombing into Cambodia, got another 30,000 Americans. So I, I think he qualifies as a major war criminal. I'm not disputing that. But nonetheless, his worldview um, was quite plausible and predicted really what happened. I mean, predicted the emergence of communist rule China as it is today and communist rule Vietnam as it is today. And we suffered the most ignominious defeat we've ever had in, in Vietnam. Nonetheless, thus far, thus far and, and not, uh, hopefully ever, because that's why I'm writing books and speaking to you as I'm trying to uh, avoid such disasters. But, um, you know, nonetheless, here are these two communist uh, powers that we couldn't defeat. Uh, and uh, what do they do? They don't go around conquering oil-rich lands. They don't go around seizing territory. Uh, they, in fact, uh, went to war with each other. That was the first uh, strategic consequence of, of our losing in Vietnam is that the two communist countries, one was supposed to be a surrogate of the other, went to war over, you know, China had been for a thousand years uh, dominated uh, Vietnam, and they were fi still fighting about border issues and islands. To this day, they're still fighting about these bloody little islands that are worthless. You know, when I, the reason I wrote the piece about uh, Nixon is I don't believe in, you know, it's the bad guys who do the bad stuff. Uh, I, I think that uh, most of the mischief is done by people who don't appear very bad. And uh, when they really appear bad, you know them, you stay away from them, you reject them, they, you know, they're, they're dripping their venom. Uh, but, but most of the mischief comes from people who present quite well. Nixon didn't present very well. And so anyway, I was very surprised when I got a letter from Richard Nixon thanking me for what he called my very, your very objective coverage of my activities. He didn't take issue with a single thing I had said in this long article, and I was pretty rough at, at different points. And he offered, uh, made an offer that I could come see him in New York. So I did. And the reason I begin the Pornography of Power book with Richard Nixon is this kind of goes to a, a main theme of mine that I've pushed in other books, and that is that we, we should not make the assumption that there are adults watching the store. We should not make the assumption that the thing being, not confuse the thing being sold with the thing itself. You know, American foreign policy in, in my adult lifetime has had, had next to nothing to do with spreading democracy, freedom, limited government, preserving human rights or anything else. It's just a joke. And, and, and the sad thing about the last 50 years of history is that the tyrants end up being uh, as often as we are on the right side of things. You know, we supported Batista. The Russians end up supporting Castro. I prefer Castro to Batista. You know, we're against uh, Hugo Chavez now. I prefer Chavez to anybody who's ever run Venezuela. I mean, well, for all his faults, the guy's trying to spread around some of the oil money to poor people. Now, no one's ever done that, as far as I know. Uh, maybe in the whole world has anyone ever done what, what Chavez is trying to do now. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people don't feel that way. I, we had a very critical piece on, on Chavez that Mark Cooper did for Truthdig. Uh, um, I realize the guy's got his failings, but my goodness, you know, for the U.S. now to be demonizing Chavez, who is, you know, actually showing something of a model of, of what to do with your oil wealth, that, you know, rare in that respect. So when I look back on the last 50 years of U.S. adventures and, and so forth, they weren't any better, actually quite often worse than the Soviets or, or what other people were doing. So then where is the virtue of separation of powers, uh, limited government, free press, all of these things. Where, where is it? And I've come to the conclusion uh, that if you're going to follow an imperial policy, uh, those things don't mean anything. They're not a restraint. And uh, th this is why the founders warned us that you should, if you want to have a republic, you can't have an empire. This was the basic demarcation between the old and the new world. That if you get into these foreign inventions, the foreign entanglements Jefferson won about, the foreign engagements Washington won about, you fall under, under the prey of what, in, in my book I quote George Washington in his farewell address, saying the impostures of pretended patriotism. Uh, you, you don't have an informed citizenry. When you are dealing with international intrigue and adventure and so forth, the truth takes an exit. A and, uh, and this is what has always happened. And so all of the restraints we have, that, which I think are very meaningful, they don't work once you're in a war situation. 
And that's what my book is all about. It's why I call it The Pornography of Power. And, and what is pornographic about it? Because it has nothing to do as you know, lap dance with real sex. This expenditure of this money, where we now spend more than the rest of the world combined, we spend more than we ever have in real dollars since World War II, more than during the Vietnam and Korean War, and, and real inflation-adjusted dollars, uh, has nothing to do with security. Nothing. We're fighting an enemy whose arsenal can be purchased at Home Depot. They use $4, you know, three, $4 box cutters, knives, a little bit tear gas spray. So it's a joke. A and we're building all these weapons to fight an enemy that doesn't exist. You can't do it with a straight face. Uh, so that's what's pornographic about it. And, and all these pundits that talk about it, I have a whole chapter basically attacking Thomas Friedman, who I think is sort of the worst of the lot. You know, they, they all come on as very serious people, you know, and we're seriously concerned with issues of national security and everything, but it's, it's bogus. It's bogus. You know, and, and there was no better proof of it to my mind. Here's Thomas Friedman, the, probably the most admired pundit in print, you know, and we're all supposed to be freaked out that the Great old newspapers might be going under to the internet. Doesn't freak me out at all. But but you know, uh, you know, and here's Thomas Friedman who supported the uh, Iraq invasion, and and then he, first he said, well they'll find the WMDs, and then when they couldn't find them, he said, what well, doesn't matter? Saddam Hussein himself is a WMD. Now if you're teaching in a graduate school or anything, and somebody gives you an answer like that, you, you say you you know would you maybe you should consider another line of work. You know, I mean, we mean something very specific about weapons of mass destruction. We mean about the prospect of ending civilization, life on this earth. Let's not kid about this. That's what it means. If we, you know, we have a lot of these weapons out there, and if that had been a primitive nuclear weapon in, in Manhattan, uh, not only would have destroyed uh, Manhattan and commerce in America and a good deal of our intellectual and media activity, but we wouldn't be a democracy now. There's no question about it. If you look at the overreaction to 9-11, uh, you know, a, 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 an attack, dramatic as it was, that only resulted in the, the loss of 3,000 lives. Can you just imagine if it had been 300,000 or larger and the whole uh, center of, of New York was unusable because of radiation? So, you know, we don't kid around about weapons of mass destruction. We have a lot of them floating around the world. We just had a B-52 floating around the United States with live ones, you know. And there are thousands of these things. It's a serious issue, the whole question of nuclear proliferation. Here's this guy, Thomas Friedman, writes a, a column in the New York Times. Saddam Hussein himself was a WMD. You know, well, he wasn't. It's absolute garbage. So, so what does language mean? What does analysis mean? What does thought mean if you can get away with a statement like that? And he did. He did. Robert, tell me a little bit about uh, Truth Dig. You talked about the Internet as uh, the different voices on the Internet. You're one of them. Yeah, I like the Internet, and I like the fact that, you know, uh, uh, we can get the word out there without cutting down too many trees or anything like that. I mean, I like the technology, and as long as someone doesn't mess it up, you know, with government control or something, right now it's the Wild West. And, you know, when we get good pieces by, so, well, right today, we have a very strong piece by Chris Hedges. I'm very proud of, of running it. And uh, it's basically about the whole failure of the media and how they're all, you know, really lackeys for the, for the uh, government. And I noticed, I just went online before, and it's being picked up all over the world, you know, and we don't charge anybody. They all steal it anyway if you try to charge it. So... You know, everybody's got it, you know, alternate common dreams, and, you know, nation links to it, but not just them, Huffington Post, and then around the world, in Ireland, you know, Germany, and everybody, people go to it. So I find that quite thrilling. Uh, here's Chris Hedges, who was the New York Times bureau chief for eight years, and, you know, knows more about the Mideast probably than any, I don't know why I said probably, than any American reporter. Uh, and uh, we're able to give him this megaphone. If we have something good, we put it on our site, we broadcast it, we let everybody out there know we have it, we send it out, and we can find a massive audience. You know, we've had uh, 20 million, we've been visited 20 million times in a little over two years, and we can do that. On the other hand, we're not prisoners of these numbers. We, we published, you know, I hate to put her down, I love her, uh, she's a great writer, but we have Bemi Ojabamaji, I can never pronounce her name, but she's written five important pieces on Africa. She's a Nigerian reporter of 22 years' experience. And we don't get massive readership for that, but I'm going to still keep running it because, you know, we got to know what's going on in Africa, and you certainly got to know what's going on in Nigeria, which is, you know, a good chunk of Africa.
there's a Senator McCain that you describe in your book, and I'm wondering if there's a if, if he's different from the one that is currently running for president because they don't seem to be the same person at all. Yeah, you know, first of all, I don't want to pretend I know, I got all this stuff figured out. I'm constantly um, surprised by my own errors, you know, or maybe accept them. Uh, I think this is an ongoing process of reevaluation. And a journalist that I respect a great deal, Matt Welsh, who's now the editor of Reason magazine, and I guess he's of a libertarian bent. And I should be prejudiced against him, even though I, I've known him for years. And, but but uh, he was uh, working at the LA Times when they ended my column, and he was an editorial writer. <laughs> but I, I really like his work very much. And he wrote a, a very thoughtful book on McCain, on the myth of the maverick, and I've developed a more uh, critical view of McCain after reading that book and re researching and also obviously observing McCain's behavior as a candidate. So you have to raise some real questions about what drives this guy. McCain has done some good things, and I think on this military spending, he has actually watched the dollar and not been intimidated by uh, the pretended patriots and, you know, raise the right questions about what this has got to do with fighting terrorism and so forth. Now, he's contradicted a lot of that by embracing the Iraq war, which is, after all, the excuse for this big military budget buildup. And as a candidate, he's been uh, terrible on, on the very same issues. So he has reversed himself. So what else is new? One of the things that struck me was the way you describe the military being funded. It's kind of like Christmas. Um, with uh, when it's Christmas, you have to give Johnny and you have to give Jane the same present. You can't give Johnny more of a present than Jane, and it's the same kind of thing we have. Our government has only Johnny and Jane are Lockheed Martin and McDonnell Douglas, and what we're giving them is fifty billion dollar contracts for things we don't really need. Yeah, we're not only well, they they are the companies, the unions that represent the workers congressional delegations that have them in their district. And as Eisenhower pointed out, the tentacles of the military-industrial complex go into almost every district. That's by design. So you'll have a constituency uh, for, for these women. What is the big battle on this air tanker? It's the senators from Alabama against the senators uh, f from uh, Washington uh, arguing about, you know, you're sending these jobs abroad. And this guy's in Alabama saying, no, it's going to be built here in Alabama. What are you talking about? You know, Airbus is going to build a plant here, you know. So, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with national security, whether we need these planes or, or anything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think uh, it's not, uh, it, it's Christmas. First of all, it's, it's a very elite Christmas. Most of us are not getting any gifts at all. And in fact, there's a great deal of sacrifice to well, pay for Well, we're paying this. for the gifts. Yeah, yeah, we're paying for it. So uh, I guess we're, I don't know, are we all the children? I don't know if I like your analogy. But I mean, the fact is, you know, we're paying through the nose for this stuff. And, and you know, people are dying in Iraq, uh, Americans, as well as many more Iraqis. So these foreign adventures, you know, cost us dearly, uh, um, not just financially. And it threatens to destabilize much larger areas of the world. I mean, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, Rumsfeld saying that there was no good targets in Afghanistan. They wanted to invade Iraq because this was a, a way to show shock and awe and the great display of firepower. And we have, oh, we have a real enemy there. We can use our planes and ships and everything. And, and then what do you do? You destabilize the whole region. You've now made Iran the major player in the Mideast, you had exactly the opposite consequence of what you claimed you were going to have. Maybe it was the consequence you really wanted to have. The oil never paid for it. You know, we know all, all that. And and so, uh, you know, uh, you have an even more reason for having a military buildup because now Iran may be a big threat, you know. And then some people even say China is going to be a threat, which is really the most absurd argument of all. I, I think I have a pretty good chapter on that. But, you know, it's, it's absolutely bizarre that the Chinese, uh, we're paying the Chinese for the interest on the money they lend us to build weapon systems. And then some people say those weapon systems are needed to, to counter weapon systems that the Chinese are not building but may be built. I mean, this is a, a, a scam of unbelievable proportions. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the uh, Pornography of Power book that, uh, you know, the Defense Department's latest study, which they were obligated to do by an act of Congress to survey the intelligence data and everything on the threat out there of China. And they said, you know, uh, China will take to the end of this decade, but really much longer, uh, to become a mid-level regional power. Uh, and their whole focus is on Taiwan. Now, you wouldn't know this from watching any of the cable or even reading many of the newspapers, but, you know, what happened in the last few weeks is that a love fest developed between Taiwan and China. 
One thing you talk about in this book, too, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective, is we hear a lot about the revolving door between Congress and the lobbyists going back and forth. What we don't hear a lot about, and what pops up in this book again and again, is the revolving door between highly paid government employees and pseudo-government employees and the firms from whom they're seeking contracts. There's no visibility, as you point out, and no responsibility and no transparency between these highly paid employees, because they're not elected after all, and the, the firms, they go back and forth, and sometimes they work for the government and the firm at the same time. Well, that's what got that top procurement join, uh, got her in trouble because she actually was negotiating her deal with Lockheed and Boeing, pitting one against the other at the same time she was dealing with airplanes that they were submitting to, to the Air Force and making decisions. So that's why she ended up in the, the slammer. Uh, but I, I, you know, the thing about it is... <laughs> You know, why are we, you know, this is kind of schleppy, two guys sitting here, we don't have a mass audience, you know, we're trying to figure this out. Why isn't, and you use the word transparency, why isn't this something observed in the mass media? Why isn't this something observed at the university in some kind of serious way? Just last night, I actually did find in the Government Accountability Office a, a more recent study of the revolving door. doesn't break it down as precisely as I would like, but, you know, stresses this is a really big and growing problem, not an old problem, a growing problem. And and it, it's, it's really uh, interesting to me um, you know, I, I understand Boeing has been a sponsor for Meet the Press, okay? I understand Lockheed and these people advertise widely. I understand money gets spread around. But I do not understand why there is not more journalistic curiosity about this. Why the easy acceptance of this is sort of an outdated issue, you know? And and the offering up of rationalizations for that, or like it's always going to be, why it doesn't shock people, I mean, why is it doesn't shock people that this is not being discussed in this election? For all the talk of the long primary scene, we had, we had Kucinich, Ron Paul on the libertarian side. You know, a few people tried to raise this issue. But in the main, we're going through what everybody's describing as a wonderful electoral experience and a refreshing uh, example of democracy. And, and uh, the elephant in the room, which is how what we're doing to the rest of the world in terms of the weapons we're building and the danger we're creating and the resources we're wasting, and not, not discussed. And everybody knows should Barack Obama come out for cutting the defense budget, he'd be destroyed. Destroyed. And by the very media, they would, they would say he's naive. They would say, oh, he, he blew it. They would t treat it as a baseball game or a football game handicapping. How many points did he lose with this? What, how many districts did he endanger? But the validity of that observation, you know, just as the validity of the observation that maybe wearing a lapel button with an American flag hardly honors the flag. You know, what is it? This has become, uh, you know, uh, a piece of jewelry, you know, and, and because it's required, it obviously lacks any meaning. You know, it's like sad thing you see a lot, in, you know, since 9-11 in Southern California, at least you have these uh, 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 immigrant workers having to have American flags flying from their car because they're afraid they'll be <laughs> marked. You know, I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's very sad, you know, but, but you know, we, we, we use the flag as, you know, a protective shield well that's sick you know it's absolutely sick it's not showing any great love for the tradition of the country you know one thing you talk about in the chapter on pearl is what i would describe as batman politics it's there's evil afoot in the world and only one country can deal with it bat america it is their view it's the view of pax americana and, and what gets wonderfully uh, mixed up in there is greed and idealism. So if you think that your country is the center of all decency in the world and the indispensable agent to progress in the human condition, which they believe, they really believe this, and, you know, uh, evidence to the contrary doesn't bother them at all. That Those were just marginal mistakes or errors of the moment, you know. But in the main, no one can get it right in the world without our heavy-handed participation. And along with that is that our heavy-handed participation, even when it leads to massive military contracts and exploitation of resources and so forth, is always done for the highest of motives and never to line your pocket or anything. So they, they've, they've got this in their gut. And, I mean, they, that's why they feel no shame, you know. And it's interesting. If, if, I, if you were to 
you know, if I were to take you out and I say, okay, I'll buy lunch, you know, given my journalistic background, I can't speak for you, there'd be a whole issue. No, I can't let you buy me lunch. We're doing an interview and we have to be objective, and, right? We, we'd have some qualm about this. So did I let Sheer buy me lunch or did I let, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is this corrupting me? You know, even if it's some cheap, you know, hamburger lunch somewhere, right? We, we'd, oh, think, sure. yeah. we'd think about it, right? You know, or at least that's what I, my 30 years at the LA Times, this was convinced me, it was very important, you know, and so I never could let somebody buy me a beer or something like that. These people have no such qualm, no such qualm, unless they think they might get caught in something that doesn't look good, and so they conceal these things, and they don't want it observed, uh, but that's only about getting caught. But they have no qualms because they are on the side of the angels, and so if Boeing decided to give me, Richard Pearl, $20 million for my venture capitalist firm. They're only doing that because it's a sound investment for their stockbrokers, stockholders. And, and, uh, and he's, that's what he fact said. It has nothing to do with influencing me and what I write or what I think or what I do on, on the defense board or anything else. You know? And they, they believe that, and they operate in a circle of people who confirm that. And then they red bait or, you know, what, Arab bait or Muslim bait or Islamo-fascist bait, anyone who dares take issue with them, you know. If you dare challenge what they do, they, they will shoot the messenger and say, no, you're just, uh, you know, a self-hating Jew or you're an Islamo-fascist or you're a communist or you're this or you hate your country or, or something like that, you know. And, and they're very good at it. They're very good at intimidating. Why, why did the New York Times hire Crystal to be an op-ed editor? Is it really a need for greater diversity on their op-ed page, uh, or is that they uh, want to protect themselves against these attacks and you know uh, and so forth? And that's what they do. You know, uh, uh, they're, they're, these guys are great at scaring people, intimidating people, and they have strong allies in the bully boy chorus of you know the O'Reillys and the Rush Limbaugh's and the right-wing radio talk guys and uh, it works they get away with it it's not observed and you know every once in a while they get sloppy and you know or you get some guy I mean look this tanker deal these people only went to jail because McCain can be a big pain in the neck you know McCain if you cross him he has a temper and he gets angry and whatever first got him into this, he unleashed his staff to do what the staff is supposed to do. And Warner, who's a guy who'd been around the block with this whole military-industrial thing, you know, been a service secretary and everything, he backed him. And he was the chair of the committee. And that's why the thing came unraveled, you know. On the other hand, you got a, a I think I mentioned before, a Senator Boxer, one of the senators, I, Barbara Boxer, that I very much like. And, you know, she backs this C-17 cargo plane down here in Long Beach that has no reason for being other than to for jobs and money and and uh, again she's not going to be examined on that or criticized you know she's just carrying water for what the unions so is that better than the company she's actually carrying water for both the unions and the company we've been speaking with robert Shear. his new book is the pornography of power how defense hawks hijacked 9-11 and weakened america he's the editor-in-chief of truthdig.com thank you for joining me robert thanks sir For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of September 21st. To include your event in our listing, please email me at agony at trashotron.com. At Capitola Book Cafe on Tuesday, September 23rd at 7.30 p.m., it's The Necklace, 13 Women and the Experiment that Transformed Their Lives. 
Jonelle McLean saw a diamond necklace and then bought that necklace with 12 other women who in round-robin style tell an inspiring story about the power of possibility, the lives of a community, and one extraordinary experience. Call 462-4415 for details. At Bookshop Santa Cruz on Tuesday, September 23rd at 7.30 p.m., Michael Brune is coming clean, breaking America's addiction to oil and coal. Call 423-0900 for more information. On Wednesday, September 24th at 7.30 p.m. at Capitola Book Cafe, Glenn Kurtz reads from Practicing, a musician's return to music, with a live performance by classical guitarist Hunter Ma. Call 462-4415 for more notes. At Gateway's Books and Gifts on Wednesday, September 24th at 7 p.m., Maggie Oman Shannon offers prayers for hope and comfort. Call 429-9600 for details. On Thursday, September 25th at 7.30 p.m., the community book group of Bookshop Santa Cruz meets with author John Hubner to talk about his book, Last Chance in Texas, The Redemption of Criminal Youth. Call 423-0900 for more information. At Capitola Book Cafe on Thursday, September 25th at 7.30 p.m., Robert Shear revels in The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. Call 462-4415 for details. At Gateway's Books and Gifts on Thursday, September 25th at 7 p.m., Gaul Sasson is your cosmic navigator. Design your destiny with astrology and Kabbalah. Call 429-9600 for details. At Capitola Book Cafe on Thursday, September 25th at 7 p.m., the World Affairs Book Club meets to discuss Putin's Labyrinth, Spies, Murder, and the Dark Heart of New Russia by Steve Levine. Read the book and join the discussion. Call 462-4415 for more information. For The Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and Around the County for the week of September 21st. Get out there and read a book! is the recipient of the Penn Medallion for Translation and the New South Wales Premier's Translation Prize. She's translated Alexandra Dumas' The Knights of Maison Rouge and Racine's Phaedra. Her newest translation is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Thank you for joining me, Julie. It's a pleasure, Rick. Julie, let's talk a little bit about um, the, this book itself first, just, just to kind of establish some of, some of the uh, parameters. Uh, Victor Hugo... Um, he was born in 1803. This was, and he lived in a time of incredible political change. And he wrote this book in exile, though, didn't he? Yes, he. Um, the exile was actually originally self-imposed. Uh, he he saw the chop coming. Um, he'd he'd really alienated the powers that be by the time he was writing this in 1862. In fact, in the 1840s and 50s, he'd started off as a royalist. And um, then he'd kind of seen through that and become very much a, a man of the people, but also a political realist. He wasn't just a man of the people. He was able to operate in the salons, and he was quite famous as a poet who'd been in the royal court. But um, when uh, Napoleon the Third, as he uh, finally named himself, came to power, it was really time for Hugo to move on. So he'd already imposed exile on himself, first of all in Belgium and then in the Channel Islands. 
in the 1850s when he started writing the draft of Les Miserables. At first it was called Les Misères, but, you know, Miseries, uh, but then it turned into Les Miserables. So he was actually writing it from a fair distance from his beloved Paris. I think he could see the coastline when the mists cleared. Um, but he was remembering Paris, I like to think, in, in very vivid detail and remembering all the political turmoil, um, as you say, that he was born into. By the time he was born, the revolution was... Uh, fairly much long gone, but the, the legacy of the revolution lived on. Napoleon had come to power, first of all, as a people's hero, and then, of course, he'd taken over and become an autocrat and an emperor, had himself crowned. And so this was the very turbulent world in which Hugo was a young man, where Napoleon, of course, finally lost the Battle of Waterloo against the British and was... Uh, very much in disgrace, and the and French society was divided between those loyal to Napoleon and those who thought he'd been a disaster. And I think Hugo, as you can read in Les Miserables, wavered between those two poles for a lot of his life, and he has a lot of very, very interesting things to say about the French Revolution, about revolution as a whole, and about... Great people like Napoleon, who are, in fact, geniuses, but can do a lot of damage as well. One of the things that you mentioned um, that I find really interesting is he had this uh, a unique ability to embrace opposing ideas, to, to, to talk about both sides yes. of the picture with, with equal conviction, didn't he? Absolutely. And this is where I say um, his personal history is interesting, because... Um, as a young man, his father had been a general, and, and obviously he'd been in uh, Napoleon's army, and, uh, but his mother was a royalist, so he, he sort of grew up schizophrenic, if you like. Um, they, his parents had separated, and, uh, you know, the general was, was seen as the bad guy in the household, but I think Hugo's attraction to his father and his father's ideals was very strong, as well as his loyalty to his mother and her royalist ideals. So he had those two things going inside him from the very beginning. Um, and then when he grew up, he was a prodigy. He, he wrote amazingly talented poetry from um, a very early age. And uh, he wanted to be a success. He was quite ambitious. And um, he, he became a courtier and, and, you know, he was very much a royalist. But at the same time, I think he's such a, an incredibly brilliant man. Um, he must have always had a lot of understanding of how people worked and, and what was going on in French society. So um, eventually he swung round to the opposite pole and became quite a champion of the people, but also someone who could see the limitations of that as well. I think the thing to remember about Hugo is that a bit like Chekhov in a completely different mode, he wasn't fooled by anybody. I think he could see through absolutely everybody and every political position on the spectrum. And But with a, with a generosity as well, he could see what was going for people. Um, you can feel that in the book, that... Uh, low life or high life, you know, he can see both sides of a person, um, the, the good qualities and the bad. And I think that that was very much the way he stood politically because, of course, though he was a champion of the people in this novel, he was also quite capable of, of a certain amount of political treachery and, uh, you know, of, of, of more or less opposing the insurgents um, in 1858, uh, 1848, sorry, um, when, when you know, one of the, the uh, revolutions was on. You had the 1832 insurgency that the novel deals with, and then you had the 1848 revolution, which is mentioned in the novel but not treated there. Uh, so he was able to take different stances. I think he was very flexible, we'd say, these days. <laughs> One thing that strikes me uh, about this novel is in its vision of the complicated dealings of humanity from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, I think that that kind of epic scope is what makes it still really relevant and seem very modern when we read it today. I'm glad you say that, Rick, because um, I felt that it was incredibly modern in, in exactly the way you described, that um, it was quite breathtaking how he was actually dealing with 
you know, in great detail, dealing with a very specific situation, and yet uh, it struck a chord with me and obviously with you and hopefully, you know, all the readers who are still so passionate about Les Miserables, the, the novel, the musical, whatever. Um, it really strikes a chord that um, maybe those insights that we've just been describing, but also that the freshness of the response to what's happening on the political stage as well as on the, the personal stage with, with different characters. And what struck me as I translated it, and I have to confess, I'd never read the novel before. Um, you and probably most people I know grew up with it, you know, and I have friends who say it was, it's their favourite novel since they were 10 or something. I'd read all the Russian novels when I was 10, <laughs> you know, and I just didn't read Hugo. I have no idea why not. Um, it can be a little daunting in its size, but it, that's, that's not the reason. It's just one of those, you know, things. There are plenty of classics I still haven't read. And in a sense, that was great because I was desperate to know how it all turned out. <laughs> I did three drafts in three years, but I, not really knowing exactly how things work because obviously the musical and the, the different film versions uh, are not exactly true to the novel. Um, that kept me going and got me over the line the first time because I was really keen to find out exactly what happened. But one of the other things that kept me going was, um, you know, the, the the pertinence to today's political situation, not only in the third world where there are people living the, you know, squalid life that is described here and dealing with it in the criminal and other ways that Hugo... Um, does so so very well um, but within cities like Paris itself uh, you'll probably remember at the end of 2005 for instance there were riots in Paris lots of burning cars and uh, you know the cobblestones being chucked as usual and uh, one of the places where there was a riot was Montfermeil which of course is famous in the novel as the scene of the greasy spoon hotel that the um, dreaded scenarios keep um, and I thought, well, you know, how perfect. <laughs> that is That is still a place that means something in a way that Hugo would have identified with very, very closely. Um, and the reasons for the riots in Paris, I mean, you could be quite cynical about them and a lot of things are now orchestrated by television and so on. But nonetheless, there are people in Paris living in the Cité, on the outskirts, and even living within Paris, I think, around about the same time or perhaps a bit earlier. Uh, when I was in the middle of the translation, that I think there were two fires right in the centre of Paris, one in the first arrondissement, so, you know, not far from the Opera House, not far from the Seine, where a number of people died when some dreadful flea pit hotel burnt down, revealing that there were people living in incredible squalor, whole families in, you know, one tiny, nasty little room in the, in the middle of Paris, one of the world's most beautiful cities. And so um, I was struck by by the relevance of that politically to our own day, but also the incredible freshness of Hugo's prose. I mean, there are things that, to me, uh, you know, there are paragraphs that go on for pages almost, but there are also these wonderful staccato, strong lines that have all the uh, sharpness and elegance that we associate with contemporary works and not something written in 1862. So both of those aspects of freshness were uh, quite striking to me as I was working on it. describe this book as an ocean of a book and you mentioned that Hugo mm. himself loved Paris and the ocean and I think mm. that's a really good apt description. 
I thought it was perfect when I, I, I finally really got to see Hugo, you know, just one thing you do when you're translating is you become very close to the person you're translating, even if they're dead, you know. And um, I, I had a picture of him as I was sort of, you know, traipsing around the, the Parramatta River here in Sydney with my dog Poppy. I really had a strong sense of Hugo walking for miles along the shore on um, Guernsey, originally Jersey and then Guernsey with, with one of his beloved dogs. And just the way he... Um, uh, I think you see it in his artworks as well. I got very interested in his artworks while I was doing this. I always have been because I think he was a fabulous artist. So some of the, the black and white pen, you know, the washes, the drawings with wash are, are just wonderful. And I just saw this man who um, absolutely loved the sea. And, and what is the sea? The sea is chaos. Um, it's... It's life, it's salt, it's all these sort of wonderful tangy things that sort of wash in and take away. And somehow um, that seemed perfect as a metaphor for his novel, which, which really is about everything in that oceanic way, you know, sort of all these things that wash up and that were sort of washing up metaphorically for him on his little island as he thought back to Paris, which um, I think I quote in the preface that uh, he, he said he had two great affairs in his life. One was Paris and one was the sea. And and I, I just felt both of those things are so present in the, in the novel. The, the Paris, which is the, you know, the, the great metropolis by the time he's writing the... It's it's not as great a metropolis as London in size, but for him it it was all life teeming, you know, all these different social types and setups, mm-hmm. um, and and the ocean, which um, is, is such a metaphor for all life. We, we we come from the ocean originally, you know, in, in Hugo's view, and I think the ocean and the stars are, are, are both very present in the novel, and the connections between the two and the sense of life sort of boiling away, roiling and toiling like to see uh, flecks of foam, you know, scintillation, all these sort of wonderful metaphors you can think of um, were very present to me when I was translating it, and I'm sure to Hugo when he was writing it. When you're translating a work, you're not just translating the words. You're also translating, you know, the the societal implications, mm. the, the 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 political sensibilities. Could you talk yes. about the the different levels of translating? First, the language, then I guess the societal implications, mm. and then the political implications. Yes, well, this this is one of the great novels in that sense, isn't it? You get all those things as we've I think agreed, you know, handed to you on a platter in a in a sense in a way that feels very fresh and modern and relevant to today. Um, and I guess one of the things about a great book, which this definitely is, uh, is that it remains relevant. It's and I think if you have that level of truth in the details both of the social setups that Hugo's writing about, um, about people, uh, about what's happening on the you know, historic front as well as the personal front. If you have that, that level of truth and honesty and, and sheer detail, which is a tribute to truth, then it's going to remain relevant sort of forever and for instance you know one of the big discursive bits in this that coincides with the actual narrative because Jean Valjean ends up seeking refuge in the convent, Cosette goes to school there etc etc so it's got its point in the narrative but there's a whole quite long bit as you would know about the convent and religion and fundamentalism you know the sort of fundamentalism that sees unmarried women entering convents and wearing hair shirts and and passing out in the heat and flailing themselves and lying on cold stone to do penance for their sins. All that sort of stuff, which, as we know, happened in convents in the, the Catholic Church and, you know, as a legacy of the Inquisition and all the sort of savagery that Hugo describes. He's really talking about religious fundamentalism and... Um, you know, for me, this is one of the scourges of our age. You've you've got religious fundamentalism, both in Christianity and, of course, um, 
in uh, extreme Islamic religion and and it just seemed everything he says about that uh, and he says it in a very sympathetic way he understands the impulse he's very compassionate about the the nuns that he describes and about the impulse to that kind of self-denial self-abnegation he's very compassionate about it all but at the same time so lucid so clear-eyed and i just thought you know all the fundamentalists out there in the current world really should be reading this <laughs> Um, he deals with the poverty, he deals with the misery that causes people to be attracted to fundamentalism, and he deals with the, the ravages that fundamentalism um, wreaks, both in, in the individual and in society. So I just sort of thought, you know, that's just taking one topic in inverted commas that happens to be very relevant to us right now, uh, and yet it just seemed absolutely perfect. We've been speaking with Julie Rose. She just recently translated Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Thank you for joining me, Julie. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.